Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, happy Thursday, my friend. <sighs> happy Thursday. Thursday. Hey, when does uh, when do you and all my American cousins celebrate Thanksgiving? That must be coming up pretty quick. A week from today. <sighs> you know what? Like so many things, you Americans, you do Thanksgiving right. We do, do. And my wife makes a great turkey. She uses a brine, like a you know, like this wrap, so it makes it really moist. Like that's the thing about turkey. Well, that, no, that's the thing about American Thanksgiving is that like this becomes like the national conversation, right? Like how? Do you oh yeah. <laughs> so your wife's secret is some wrap brine kind of. Yeah, thing. because turkey and lamb, both, I think, if they're dry, they're great dishes. But if they're dry, they're ruined. Well, like that's true. That's true. You know what I mean? And so the, I, I feel like that she's I mean, really perfected the sort of moist turkey, which I mean, if you it's like in Christmas vacation when they had that dry turkey, they're just pouring <laughs> gravy on it. I told you we left it in too long. Oh, it's fine. Dude, I have a, I have a, I have a, a game for you. I want to ask if you can identify a singer. Okay. I just, okay. Well, I can already tell you I'm going to fail at this game. Okay. So I'm going to play this for you. This is two singers, all right? And see if you can identify who they are. They're fa- they're famous people. Yeah, that doesn't help me. This is singer one. Here comes singer two. Okay, well, the first one's clearly Jay Leno. Okay, so you think the first one was Jay Leno? <laughs> no, so the, the, the problem with this game is you presume that I know the names of... I, I'm pretty sure I know Tom Hanks and what he looks like, and that's about as deep as my celebrity knowledge goes. I thought, okay, so... I was when I was in LA. I mean, I barely recognized Alex Trebek, and I was in his house. Wow! Did we talk about that story? We we talked about the picture you sent me, but oh no! But so so then when I was in LA, then I yeah, I gave this. uh, So I gave the annual Alex Trebek lecture, and the last time I was in LA, we uh, we met up at his house and a great conversation. Fascinating. fascinating Did you frame everything in the form of a question? I (laughs) so I walk up the front gate. And uh, and along a like a long driveway, which is clearly meant to be driven, not walked. But I had taken a taxi there, and then literally I reached the end of the driveway, and I looked to the left and the right, and I don't know which way to go. <laughs> it's just this estate <laughs> in um, uh, in Studio City, nice house. I would have designed okay. it a bit differently, but you know, well, L.A. L.A. Yeah, so yeah, let me own. tell you who those two singers were. Okay, this blew yep. me away. Yeah. The first voice was Joe Pesci. No way. Yes. He's coming out with a new album. And the second one, he was doing a duet with Adam Levine. Okay. So this was an entirely impossible test. I heard it on the Howard Stern show and I wanted to play it for you. And I was blown away. Like Robin Quivers guest Whoopi Goldberg for the first one. Oh, I thought. Are we, too, are we being pro- are we being paid to promote their album? No, nah, I'm not. What, but I just but, thought it was so interesting because <laughs> I didn't even think it was a man at first. No. Well, I was thinking, is that Nancy Pelosi? Yeah, it's Joe Pesci. That's great. 
I love it. Okay. I'm going to buy the album because I like that. I liked his voice in that. I thought it was kind of cool. That's impressive. That's impressive. So you gave, not just have you given the Trebek lecture, you gave a TED Talk and it was in Mumbai and I watched it. I was, I'm going to tweet it out today. I was very impressed. Oh, I'm so Great nervous job. about you watching my TED Talk. It was great. I thought you I like, crushed you know, it. No, I'm like Scott Scott Kent Jones. That's a high bar. He's not. I gonna, thought you crushed it. If if well, oh well then, dude, then that's my definition of happiness. That's my that's success. If if you got something out of it, like if you found it thought provoking, then holy shit, man. Yeah, Let it me, was good. I I thought it's a lot of stuff too. We've been wrestling with for a while, and I I feel like you you articulate some things that are you know asking like offering more description than prescription. Like this is sort of this is the lay of the land, you know, now how do we navigate it? So, so interesting, right? Because there's a whole David and Goliath story behind that Ted talk, uh, in that they are, so Ted is so prescriptive about this is what a successful talk needs to be, right? You got to answer a question. I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't know the answer. (laughs) I think I know the question, but I don't know the answer. Like, no, you got to give us like, I am not going to dumb it down. This is a talk about how, the great ill of our society is that over a century of mass media, we've become addicted to simple truths. And you want me to dumb that down? Do you not understand how contradictory that is? And then they're like, you know, here's a time limit. I'm like, I, I, you know, I'm going to take as long as I need to take to say it. And we want you to end with like three takeaways. I said, I'm not going to do that. I, it was, it was, and then even like in the post-production, um, the, the kind of war with the curators to, to kind of to get it up, to get the cut that I wanted. And then the other thing I found fascinating is that they put it up, but they also plastered it with disclaimers. I Wait, I didn't see it. Wait, I wasn't noticing the disclaimers. What were the disclaimers? Oh, it's like editorial note. Like this was in Mumbai. And <laughs> it's just, I think, I think it was, I think two things might have thrown, might have thrown. I don't know who like made the final curating decisions to you know add the disclaimers and stuff. But I think that one thing that might have thrown them was the first line, right? You know, let social media run amok. And I think I think that just concerned them. Oh my god, we're gonna get way too much flack for this. So I love that. I, I, I love that. it too. I, I think, think that's. I think you were so right on that. From the first time I read it in your book, we've talked to the age of discovery. I've I've thought about that. We've talked about it on the podcast. The more we talk about it, the more right I think that is. Yeah, and I guess the more you and I talk about it, the more I realize that, you know, the way that the whole questions around social media and fake news, mainstream media and all of that have been framed are just so stale. You know, government regulation versus laissez-faire, censorship versus free speech. And and really, I think, you know, what you and I are doing, pat ourselves on the back, is, is struggling to surface. Now, there's like we begin with an inkling there is something much much deeper at stake here and there's the, and the, the idea to blame the tech companies like well you've unla- like this quick move to serve with regulation and demonization that will I, I i just think that that shifts responsibility away from citizenry like this is you know we've helped to create the context in which this technology and culture emerges we're users of it we're we help it succeed. And so it, it's on us to adapt to how it is used. And that like, there's no, totally, there's no panacea. Like, like for, for every anxiety filled moment, hmm. 
there's a panacea that's absolutely wrong and bullshit. I got to write that down for every anxiety filled moment. There's a panacea that is wrong and bullshit. That's yeah. Good. But people, you know, good. it's like, what we'll do is we'll get Mark Zuckerberg and give him a tongue lashing, like dressing, like nanny's going to dress him down. And it's all, I mean, it, it, it's, it, the stuff is like, yeah, I, I just think we're not, it's all scratching yeah, the surface. Uh, totally. Totally. And you know, as you say, like it, it comes to us as citizens, the, the, the real questions aren't about you know the technology and the abuses of it the real questions are about you know are kind of things like what relationship do we want to have with one another and and how can we leverage these technologies to put ourselves in that relationship with one another but there's such a rush to you know solve the problem yeah to to, to blame people and 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 to solve the problem without without appreciating that things are happening because it's revealing things about our culture and and i think one of the big reveals and <laughs> i got back so you know you put out a ted talk and you start to get all sorts of things firing back at you and, and so one was like you've missed all these things i'm like dude yeah i didn't try to solve the whole terrain and yeah 14. i had 15 minutes dude oh, i didn't even have 15 i had 13 and i and i went went over pissed them off but anyway um but um you know i think one of the big reveals one of the big things that social media is you know, should be helping us get in tune with is, you know, this is kind of a, a big chunk of my talk that, you know, we went through a century of the mass media age and we became addicted to simple truths. Why? Because those are the truths you could package and sell and, 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 and promote at scale, right? And so we became addicted to simple truths. And what we're going through now, now we're coming to terms with the cost of that addiction, which is that simple truths are worthless when everyone can broadcast them. And that's that's really like that's one of that's not the other it's one of the big, bigger sort of cultural questions that we need to kind of identify and and sit with and work through. Like, yeah, we we've created a culture of truth that doesn't that you know that prefers certainty to doubt, that admits a lot more cynicism about our institutions than faith in projects like journalism or science to actually give us complexity that we have to deal with and 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 now we're now we're struggling with the consequences of that yeah. and and those, there's just such there's such an exciting and uh, and 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 transforming project of just you know how will we be as a culture of information and dialogue and you know and just relationship with one another um and and it's clearly got to be something very different than it was in in the mass media age and and, yeah. and, and and there's so much opportunity and responsibility on us to reflect on that to think about that and to and to be the agents of giving birth to that but the idea that that whatever metamorphosis we're going through right now is just wrong just shut it down let's go back to in the kind of the 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 the, the certain this the certainty and the clarity of truth that we had you know 10 15 years ago i don't know i i i i find that uh, that whole direction limiting i think there's something better that lies beyond i mean not naively so this is the difference you know my argument versus say zuckerberg zuckerberg i think has kind of the naive argument uh, free expression is a good thing and it will just automatically produce a better society well I, yeah i think that's too naive but i think that if we're kind of consciously he should have not dropped out of harvard and taken some philosophy oh my god yeah well i did you see his uh, georgetown yeah. speech? i actually yeah. watched it and so my thought was dude you have so much money could you not hire a philosopher for a couple of days exactly. to have written you a better speech <laughs> yeah it's yeah anyway I'm so, off. That was the it's interesting. 
It's interesting because I feel like this segues nicely into this piece I sent you yesterday. Oh, amazing piece. Whoa. It, this is, again, from the Hedgehog Review. I just got the new issue. And this is this guy, Isaac Ariel, Ariel Reed, who is a senior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies at, uh, at UVA and co-director of its Hannah Arendt Working Group on Critical Theories of Modernity. And he also teaches sociology at UVA. But it's interesting because his essay is, is sort of, I guess, an uh, excerpt summary of his forthcoming book from the University of Chicago Press, uh, The King's Two Bodies. Uh, the essay is called The King's Two Bodies and the Crisis of Liberal Modernity. And I thought this is, it's another interesting thing, right? Because it's, it's not unrelated to what we're talking about. He's thinking about political theory and how the, the, he's looking at sort of the transition to modernity, which, again, he's thinking a lot of the struggles that we're having with demagogues and a kind of unruly populism, things like this. These are not new realities, but these are things that are built into the development of the modern project it, itself. And especially, you know, he looks at, at Weber and, and, Weber's understanding of disenchantment, differentiation, right? That in modernity, things are disenchanted. The world's not sacred anymore. It's not mystical. It's sort of, it's all cause and effect. And we sort of have a sort of materialistic conception of things. And then differentiation where there's all these different spheres and you sort of don't know which rules to bring over into which situation from which sphere. And he has this great example. Should my rabbi or my psychiatrist be the one I ask for advice about who I marry? Like, you know, you're all, you have all these. And so he thinks that that, 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 combination of differentiation and disenchantment creates so much of the sort of alienation that people find modernity. But then he thinks also there's something uniquely, a, a unique change in political theory, which I, which I found interesting. It was, okay, so um, can I, can, can we do this? Can I try to summarize for you in my own words what I took away from this piece? Yes, that would be fantastic. And, and the reason I want to do that is because you know, and everybody who's listening to this knows it's it's all it's already apparent. Like you, you just you operate at a higher intellectual level. Not true. <laughs> we operate. At, we I think we we both think differently. We or think, at least we if think, we, if we yeah we definitely. But I mean, if we counted syllables, I feel like you use more syllables than I do, and that's impressive because you know, like 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 you think of my TED talk. I definitely used more syllables than uh, than than most other. How people How did you who decide what to wear for the on TED the stage? Talk? Well, you did. You didn't get to see it, but the T-shirt that I wore. On the back of it reads "Art is Truth." Okay, and um, and I wanted the audience to see it. So something that um, that happened on stage on the day that didn't make it to the cut is I actually paused to take a sip of water. There is a table off to the side where they hide water, and that gave me a chance to put my back to the audience and show them the back of my T-shirt, which is just 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 cute. I I, I like the T-shirt. That's that's all. Are you are you are you criticizing my sartorial? No, I liked choices? it. I just I liked it. It was very simple, kind of elegant. You know, t-shirt, jeans. Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a t-shirt, jeans kind of guy. And right, I was so. like, well, how did he? It's just very interesting because you could have worn anything, and I, I was very could have worn anything, but very simple. I could have worn good. anything, but then if you look at my at my closet, my wardrobe, you would see that it's likely going to be t-shirt and jeans. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I mean, there's not much else. Um, okay. Yeah. So, and, and I, I, I think a lot of that other stuff was lost on me, but kind of the political theory stuff, I thought, oh, okay, I, hmm, I've got something. So let me try to give you my simple summary of what I took away. So the King's two bodies, uh, a clear anchor for me in the piece was when he, you know, he gives that line of what happens when uh, a monarch dies in the UK or, you know, you see it in the movies, a king is dead. Long live the king. Long and, live the king. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so the idea being that the king has two bodies. 
which is there's the actual person and then there is the kind of institution. And in that moment, like the person dies, the king is dead, but the institution is ongoing. It, it, it's permanent. Uh, and so it just transfers from one person to the other. And it seems to me that what he's saying is that, so that idea of the kind of the bigger institution is really important to kind of the political culture of a society. It's like, okay, that's, that's what we are all a part of. I love this and, phrase too. He says that the body is not eternal because it exists in history, but it's, it's. Yeah. He gave a new word there. Sempi, sempiternal, sempiternal. It exists ongoing throughout time with the idea that it'll be in uh, basically indefinite. Is that, is sempi, is that a Latin prefix? You must know. Sempiternal. I, I'm guessing. Are you I'm, Latin? I'm gonna, are you a Latin I mean, I'm going to look it up to see if it's actually a word if you made it up, but <laughs> sempi. Anyway, so. Eternal. It is a word. Eternal, everlasting. Okay. It means, so, it means everlasting. Dude, I'm, I, I'm trying to provide a little scaffolding so that, you know, you know, all of our listeners can kind of hang on this, this article that you made. By the way, it's like a 25 page article. Thanks for picking something easy. It's not short this week. So, okay. So, uh, the King's two bodies is referring to that idea that, you know, the King is dead, the individual, but long live the King. The institution is ongoing. And it, what I understood him to be saying is that that idea of kind of the ongoing institution, the thing that we can all be a part of, is really important to political culture, political community. And at some point, you know, part of modernity is that idea transferred from, uh, you know, the institution of the king, of the monarchy, to sort of the institution of the people, of democracy, Okay, fair enough. But we still got to have that sense that there is something bigger, something permanent of which I am a part, that that's really key. Yeah, because he has that term, right? Authoritative delegation. We're like, yeah, I didn't understand second, that term. Second body is like, so the sheriff of Nottingham or the archbishop or these, all these, all these, like, all these figures who run the kingdom, who run the realm, right? They all, in some sense, share in the king's body, the wider body, that second body. So there's this sense that, like, you know, uh, this offense is an offense against the crown. Like, mm. you, you, so, so it gives this sort of sacredness or this sort of, yeah, it, it gives, it gives a reason why these people have the dignity and authority that they do when they act in wider society. So they're mm. an extension of that body and it gives them legitimization. It legitimizes their action. Right. Okay. So let me. Uh, jump straight to the conclusion, um, skip over a bunch of interesting analysis. But so this idea, there's something sacred, there's something kind of magical. It, it is it is magical, but it, it is also real in our community, that that's, that's the kind of enchantment. And modernity is to some extent a, a process of disenchantment, where that magical sacred thing is less and less real. And so the kind of second body of the king it's kind of disappearing. And that's, and, I think and I he's think arguing, also, that's the yeah, root and, of the, cri and, and of the crisis. The along with the disenchantment, there's the differentiation because the relationship between this institution and this institution all makes sense under the king's body. The church, the university, the market, all like has this sense in which is this it place all exists in the larger whole. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that but, doesn't but exist But when the either. larger whole is gone, then like, you know, well, the academy is off over there and journalism is here and capital is over there and there's nothing really to hold it together anymore. And so it seems to be what he's saying that, okay, so we're going through this process of disenchantment. We're going, and because we kind of lost a big story to hold us together, we're kind of drifting apart, differentiation as he calls it. And so this is where the authoritarian tendency, where the the hunger for kind of the, the strong person of the leader to 
to provide, you know, a, a, a unifying force. It's sort of the sense that everything is just dissolving. And if we can't have sort of the two bodies of the king, then the first body damn well better be firm and strong and authoritative. And we're going to kind of put our faith into, into that thing, into that person. And so it's the collapse of the magical aspect of our community. It's the collapse of the, of the sacred aspect of the, of the eternal or permanent or sempaternal aspect of our community that, that leaves us wanting and, 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 and creates the conditions for uh, the, the strong leader to, um, to be... Um, to be to be wanted yeah like and, this here, here's this great quote did i so did i roughly yeah no get i it? think you're absolutely right and, and, absolutely and then right. so the question he's saying is basically is how do we restore that second body of the king how do we yeah uh, is there a way to sort of get in modernity where we look at the people as sovereign where we look at people's individuals where we we are we are a little skeptical of these sort of divine right of kings mm-hmm. and these pre-modern things that give broader meaning mm-hmm. how do we replace this how do we have something that that is and here's this great line he said, presidents have become increasingly culturally sovereign, though never as an aspect of consensus, but as a flashpoint of polarization. So he's saying mm. there, it's really interesting mm. that we, we project all this onto the presidency, right? So they become this. It's funny, in the American Constitution, there's no right to vote for president. There's only a right to vote for your House member. There's not a right to vote for the Senate. But we take this as our most sacred vote, this presidency. And then he's saying they become these cultural figures, but not by consensus. It's like the cowboy George Bush and people get behind that or the cosmopolitan Obama or the sort of populist Trump, the, the fighter Trump. Like they, they get behind all these things. It, 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 but it's always polarizing. It's one group of people that love it mm. at the expense of an alienation of another group. Mm. So I think it's really interesting, you know, that you kind of assigned us as reading this week, this article, and this idea of modernity is disenchantment, modernity is differentiation, and a kind of modernity is the is the collapse of of the magic of the myth. He uses the phrase sacred canopy, which I think is a really great phrase and and thinking about that in the context of uh the impeachment hearings underway in the house intelligence committee in the united states where you can kind of see that as as the kind of talking stick switches from democrat to republican what seems glaringly missing is any shared sense of mission of a sacred canopy toward which like yeah right you know there's there's a kind of there's there's some framework and i'm not trying to take sides just that there's some framework right, that we the, can the, both we're, we're understand under, that we're yeah. part of the same project and it just seems to be um so glaringly absent it's i mean just it, team sports it's 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 tribal sports it's it's our team versus your team there's not the sense we're these office holders that have a duty a responsibility towards right. a, a runaway executive yeah. power there's none of that yeah, I mean, and in in my TED talk, I I kind of said the same thing differently. I said, uh, you know, we've, I think we've got this choice to confront, which is do we do we want to de- do we want to declare that truth is dead? Truth, which is you know maybe another word for the sacred canopy, that there is something larger than ourselves, something bigger than what I myself can comprehend, or or that might be aligned with my personal interests, but that but of which I am a part, a bigger reality. And and you know, I think that a lot of yeah, these kind of the the tribal team sport of politics today is just a refutation of that. It's saying that no, truth is dead, and and instead of finding some kind of sincerity in the search for truth, um, sincerity for us is going to be whatever comes out of our groups. So I, you know, I buy what my group is buying. I believe what my group believes. Um, it's so funny you can see this when when before Trump got elected, 
Generally, Republicans had a lower, have a, had, a, had a more unfavorable view of Russia than Democrats. Now, Democrat, uh, uh, now Democrats have a, have a more unfavorable view. Republicans have a more positive view. Hmm. The NFL, before Trump, Republicans generally had a more favorable view of the NFL. Democrats had a more unfavorable view. Then Colin Patrick. Also, now, Democrats have a higher view of the NFL. Republicans, a lower view. It's, it's, just, it, there's, it's just my tribe says it, so that's it. It settles it. I believe it. That's fascinating. It's disturbing. He has this other so insight he, too. Yeah. Okay. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was, I was like you. I was just sort of reading through the article, and I scratched many notes. And you know, I think where he, where he goes, and I, I think kind of in like my TED talk. I mean, he's, he's, he's raising more questions than he has answers to. But it's kind of saying, I think this is the question that we need to grapple with. Uh, and and he, he phrases it in different ways throughout. But but one of the ways he phrases it is, um, you know, in a pluralistic society. What are the bases of solidarity, social support, social control, and the pursuit of a meaningful life? And I think, you know, that that is the, you know, kind of the big question, which is, you know, again, like sort of what is true? You know, do yeah, we and have... Is there anything that holds us together other than function? Like other than, mm. you know, is, is, is the liberal democratic project anything more than a set of procedures to stop things like the 30 years war so we can get along with each other in pluralism and not kill each other? Right. Is it anything more than that? Right. And he, I, I don't know if I circled it, but there's one point where uh, he says, you know, we kind of we haven't been at the, the current sort of liberal democratic experiment for all that long. And we've never really run it in a society where uh, no ethnicity is in the majority, where we've kind of where, where the plurality of our values is really kind of put to the test. Um, and and I, I think that's really interesting. I mean, there, there is so much happening, you know, in, in our social conflicts across the liberal democratic world that has to do, you know, in one way or another with, with race, with immigration, with, with the changing demographic structure of society. And, and I think it's interesting that he calls out that, yeah, like, so this is sort of a new, a new and in and, and a sense more, more, more challenging, a better test of our commitment to these um, democratic ideals of equality. Um, because to some extent in the past, you could kind of, yeah, you give lip service to it, but there is some kind of, um, you know, we've kind of, we, we, we have universal franchise, but we found a way to maintain, you know, an elite authority or, or kind of monopoly over power anyway. And so it's universal franchise, but really it's always going to be in the interests of these people. And, and yeah, he has this great, here's this great insight, which I think is amazing because he's talking about how, uh, how this desire and modernity for more democracy and more dignity in the individual. He says the repeated modern attempts to essentialize racial, ethnic, and in di a different way, gender differences can be seen in part in this light to secure delegation in a world in which every citizen is a king in his own castle the distribution of personhood became fiercely, violently strict about its boundaries, hmm. even as it expanded in other ways, and indeed over the long arc expanded beyond the property-owning white male citizenry. It's very interesting saying, like, look, that that almost you almost have an increase in these fixing these gender and racial lines because the, of the because taking away the sacred canopy. Yeah, that 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 it didn't make everything uh, so equal. In fact, there's a kind of a, a kind of reactionary discrimination that can come when you pull a when you pull apart the sort of king second body thing. Yeah, there was something about um, sort of reasserting the same power through other mechanisms, through other structures. I think um, sort of an attempt to preserve dominance. Um, and another thing that sort of his his writing made me just think about 
Um, so he talks about, you know, kind of part of modernity is this attempt to kind of, you know, in his words, quote, jettison religion and philosophy for scientific materialism. And this is like the poster child for this is Neil deGrasse Tyson. Okay. Right. Who is a charming guy <laughs> and bright. And yet when he talks about stuff that's not scientific, mm. like when he talks about philosophy, he sounds he sounds like almost as bad as Zuckerberg at, at times. That's interesting. Okay, so I've I've never watched. I mean, I know who this person is. I've never watched it because I guess I'm in the UK, and so he's not on you know BBC or anything like that. I, I'm sure I could find it on YouTube, but I've never I've never sought out his television program. So that's interesting insight. But I I guess it gets to this point of is it is it feasible or is it des- is it feasible is it desirable to adopt kind of entirely scientific materialistic philosophy towards life you know the universe everything and i think there is this kind of i mean we've talked about this many many times but for for me the simplest way to think about it is that you know we may be modern people but you know our our consciousness our language our way of sense making it's not like it was you know software that was written last year it's it's been an evolution over millennia since you know we made the first grunts that conveyed meaning and so our ways of being aware in the world in 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 a billion ways that we are not at all aware of um contain you know ancient aspects of of tribalism of magic of of myth i mean there are all sorts of artifacts of, of and we other ways desire. of other ways of consciousness and 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 because we're suddenly in modernity doesn't mean that those other ways of making sense of the world lose meaning, lose lose the power to move us. I mean, we all enjoy music. I mean, it it's it's it, it moves us in an irrational way. Um, and so, the idea of building a society that is entirely rational, in some ways, is is you know, it, 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 it's just some kind of I don't know, classical liberal wish fulfillment. But it's yeah, yeah, and we you're not going to get questions about teleology and purpose and the meaning of things like out of the human condition. And this is one of the things I think Hmm. uh, that drives certain kinds of populism because they'll offer teleology. This is what, what this good life means. This, these are the good guys. These are the bad guys. This is why we're great as a people. We, you know, uh, we could say Merry Christmas again, which Trump always was. Now we say Merry Christmas in the stores because of me. (laughs) (laughs) That's a simple thing. It's, I want him to come out as a flat earther. Oh yeah. yeah, That would be great. There, I heard a flat earther say that a guy who interviews him, they said, Trump knows the earth is flat. But he knows if he outs it, the CIA will kill him like Kennedy. They, they, uh, they can't. So that's why he knows the earth is flat. That's mm, what they say. But mm, he's one of us. He's mm, one of the flat earthers. But, mm. but yeah, you know, you have this, this, this sense that like the Merry Christmas thing, that's so silly. But yet it, it represents the sense of uh, it's the sacred canopy kind of thing. Right. So uh, it, this is tangentially arrayed, uh, related to, you know what is going on psychologically for people who are flat earthers um it it's it's maybe more he in in this sentence he's speaking more directly to you know kind of racial relations um and it goes back to something he said just a moment ago but uh basically in the modern republican democracy racial exclusion instantiated a strict hierarchy whose psychological gains for white citizens could blunt various other experiences of inequality um and, and 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 so I think there's something in, you know, in support for populists. There's there's a psychological gain that blunts 
other forms of inequality. I mean, say, for example, um, hostility to intellectual elites, right? Yeah, but you're, you know, I, if I can find a way to kind of dismiss you as, let's say, mainstream, for me, there's a psychological gain. You know, I've been in this hierarchy where uh, intelligence is respected and you have more credentials than I do. And so that puts you in a position of superiority. There's a psychological gain for me if I can dismiss that. Yeah, I've, I I've, I've immediately that. switched the price tags and I now am more valuable than you. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, authentic. The and you're... Value of, yeah, yep, yep, absolutely. And so I mean, and, and so I think that those conflicts for, for self-worth, um, for self-dignity, are also a big part of what is playing out in a lot of our politics today. Yeah, it's it's interesting because this is like I I I feel like his fingers on the pulse of of something, and I I he I, I it is it's a question like can can we come up with a modern because we can't go back right we're not going to go back to pre modern sensibilities uh, even it's funny because even the the sort of populist go back to make america great again and all this stuff it's always nostalgic and mythical you know we don't go we don't go back but yet like we have to can can we find something equivalent that functions suitably and in a way that does justice to modernity and yet isn't reductive like the worst of modernity yeah yeah so so i think i mean i think you put your finger on it right there you know like make america great again as an example of something mythical that people hunger for um and and again if i if i also think about the spectacle of the impeachment hearings happening you know as 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 we're speaking um in washington dc right now so in that context he he has this line he's talking about um uh albert camus uh writing about the french uh french revolution and um, at the trial of Louis the Sixteenth, Camus commented, "Quote: We are not dealing with law; we are dealing with theology." Which is what he means. He's talking about the sacred canopy, right? Yep. Is is this about a king, or is is this about a people? What is the sacred canopy, and whatever it is, that's going to determine what the law says yep. should happen in this trial for you know Louis the Sixteenth. And it's the same thing with with Trump today. I mean, they're using law and they're using the the trappings of 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 kind of you know constitutional authority. But really, the contest is a theological one over what's the story here. Yep. Are we a yep. constitutional democracy? You know, where we're where where our capacity, the capacity of the executive to act, is bounded by you know our interpretation of this document that we're all supposed to be under, or is there a kind of a, a sense of mission to make America great again? That if the Constitution is wrong, well, then it's got to get out of the way. Yeah, this is like sort of some of the early like debates you saw in Islam about the nature of the Quran and Quranic interpretation and and who could be legitimate successor of the Prophet and all this sort of stuff. It's it's uh, it's very similar in some ways. It's like you know how do we read our sacred text and who gets to carry on the story and and so he goes on to write lawyers. So in that context, but I think it's, you know, similar today, lawyers, judges, politicians, they're also actors on a stage of history. They are a part of a drama of good and evil and thus a theology. Hmm. To commit violence is to commit to one or another answer to the question of what is sacred. Hmm. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I think that we, because people find, you know, again, there, there's this, the worst of modernity with all the disenchantment and, and differentiation, you can feel kind of nihilistic or whatever, that a call to arms can often give somebody a sense of meaning. Like if I'm against this person, I now know that there is good and evil and there is meaning like, because that's evil, that's good, bad. And then 
the inverse of that is I'm on the side of the angels. I'm good. And it recreates amidst all the disenchantment and, 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 and disenfranchisement and stuff. It recreates all right. I got meaning again. Yeah. So, so interesting. So yeah, this is kind of this division of good and evil that I'm good and you're evil. And that kind of leads to, you know, the next thing that he talks about, um, which is, I guess, you know, in terms of asking questions of here we are at this moment in history and, and what are the questions we need to be asking ourselves? Um, the next question is, is a widespread distribution of sacredness possible, which is to say wide enough that we're both good and that that is, that is one of the key questions that is kind of up for, well, I guess up for us to answer in how we respond to this moment. I mean, right now, it's such a sense of division in society, which is there's, there's not enough sacredness for everyone, right? You got to kind yeah, of get, right, right, you right gotta get under a tent that, you know, that, that, um, that you fit into. And if you think back at kind of like the, but the, you know, the classical ideal of liberal democracy is the sort of humanistic view that we're all sacred. Right. And, and But that's easier to, to commit to intellectually than it is to... Bring to fruition. Bring to fruition and create symbols yeah. and stories that... Modern symbols and stories. Right, right. That, that create that kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this is why... See, oh, we're, 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 we're decoding him as we go. This is great. So in the next paragraph, he talks about um, collective representations and their performance and how important those are. Um, things like the Gettysburg Address. Okay, in the U.S. context, we all get that that was a sacred. Thing. It's we all we're all under that. Um, you know, um, Selma, Alabama. But how many of those are there, and how important, how critical are these to give a people a sense that there really is a sacred canopy? Yeah, I keep using that phrase because it's just so I think helpful in terms of yeah, trying the, to there's articulate. There's a book it. by by the sacred canopy by uh, Berger, Peter Berger, the, the famous sociologist. He has a book called The Sacred Canopy. Mm. So it's a great phrase. So so I, I guess I guess sort of the the challenge that we face is so he said the king has two bodies, and in kind of modernity, the idea is supposed to be that every individual has two bodies. In, in yeah, a, we all are the we all are the sacred body. Where it's the, the government of the people for the people by the people. This idea that there's a shared we're all the second body. Yeah. And then, and then the challenge is that we know that you know we're we're failing in so many ways in this ambition. Um, yeah, because it, you know, we, uh, in the, we, in, do, in, we in just have modern been, thing. We yeah. exist under the second body kind of thing. Mm. We don't constitute it together. Like we exist under it, but we don't constitute it. Mm. We don't make it up collectively, which is a different kind of thing. Yeah, this is why you know we we need sovereign. We need the royal family to step it up. <laughs> so I was actually thinking about that. I was thinking about. Um, uh, I think like a season one episode of the crown um, and, 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 and wondering like what queen Elizabeth would say about this. Like the King has two bodies because I'd have to look up the episode. You've seen the crown, right? You know, the, the I've just started season three. Okay. So, I mean, I vaguely remember season one and I can't remember the quite, quite the context, but there's some, there is some circumstance I think in which people are encouraging her to abdicate or step to the side or something and she talks about she kind of she goes into her early tutorial notes about um being the sovereign and i i'd have to like kind of pause there's a phrase the constant and the whatever the the, yeah there's like yeah but basically like there's the like there's the temporal and then there's the sort of spiritual or the sacred or something like that um so it's interesting that, you know, in, in a constitutional monarchy, there is quite, in, in kind of the theory of like, what is a constitutional monarchy and why does it exist? There is this explicit notion that the crown is the representative of this sacred canopy, that 
that you know the the delegates um, may divide over issues, but the crown is always the unifying symbol um, of of what we are all a part of. And I guess in in a presidential system where the president is also head of state, so in, you know in the parliamentary system, the prime minister is uh, sort of the chief executive, but not the head of state. Right, um, right. He's the, the head runs the government, not the state. Right, right. And so, like when uh, when when heads of state get together, you know, Canada and the U.S., uh, it's the president, and in our case, the governor general, right? Or here in the U.K., the queen. I mean, the prime minister gets to tag along because they can get work done, but the heads of state doesn't include the 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 the, the prime minister. So, in, so in the presidential system, uh, explicitly, there is the, the the those two bodies of the king in one person. And I think what he identifies is it's because the person's elected and and there's so much popular emotion energy, it's always a divisive kind of power mm-hmm. sim- symbolism. It's mm-hmm. it's not, hey, I'm not partisan. I'm a symbol for to, to, to try to enfold us all in some sort of unity despite our, our obvious differences. It's it's almost the present picks which differences are 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 the sacred ones in the moment or the winning ones in the moment. It's, uh, yeah. So, but I also think maybe we're saying the same thing. I, I and I think he talks about this around how you know recent presidencies have have diminished that 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 role of in addition to you know having been mainly elected as the representative of my party, I'm now the unifying symbol. Um, I'm the unifier. Um, and and I think certainly in current president, there's sort of there's one of the issues that let's say a lot of traditionalists in in American society I think have issue with is there just seems to be a total absence of the the sacred the ceremonial yeah most presidents have tried to to govern the whole country to build their bait to to sort of represent more than the people that elected them because it's the nature of it, the symbolic nature of the role hmm. that that is changing now. Hmm. And it's more that you're the president of, of the people who elected you. Right, right. And it's kind of more of a sense of like these wilder swings where, you know, we've had four years of just complete, completely disregarding this group's interests. And so now that we're now that we've got the reins of power, we need to swing the other way. And it and, and, and so the kind of the need to maintain the balance by swinging to both extremities makes it very hard to ever feel like the person in that role is ever speaking with the national voice. And then if that yeah, person isn't speaking with the national voice, then who is? What does he say? He says, it should not entirely surprise us that this format of power has reappeared in a moment in which our political culture seems ill-equipped to confront not only our deep divisions, but also the irresponsibility and indifference to democracy among certain titanic pillars mm. of wealth. I mean, it's interesting because he's like, it's it's almost like this shouldn't surprise us that we feel so ill-equipped. It's It's... It's sort of the nature of the beast. We've evolved in such a way that that as this is, as this sort of demagoguery and, and, and inequality stuff have, have it's almost a, a consequence of how we've developed. So it shouldn't surprise us that we feel so ill-equipped to deal with it because it's been a process that's got us here. Right. Yeah. This kind of <clears throat> you know this sort of fetishization of what is measurable. I think is kind of at the at the root of our rooting out. Or marginalizing um, a lot of what is um, what is mythical, what is ceremonial, what what is purposeful, and and you know to some extent this has been you know modernity. It's sort of been a five hundred year journey. Yeah, I've discovered like wow, it is so powerful to kind of examine the peace 
and to measure it and to, to measure the forces and the relationships, we can accomplish so much more than when we kind of took the world as a crude whole. We can accomplish so much more when we break it down into pieces that we can master and control. Um, and, and it's kind of, I think, you know, that, that, that power of the piecemeal approach to reality has, you know, has also shaped our whole sort of philosophy. Yeah, there's, 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 there's certainly benefits, but there, there are major benefits, but there are also big costs. Well, and yeah, and so the question is around, well, one of the big costs is around, so, so to what extent do we care about the whole anymore? Or do we even have a language or a capacity to take it seriously? Um, and as, as the whole becomes less something that we can take for granted and more something that we have to explicitly work together to maintain, you know, that question becomes more urgent. I, f- I found the sentence where he says, um, the simple fact of the matter is that the world has never built a multi-ethnic democracy in which no particular ethnic group is in the majority and where political equality, social equality, and, ec- and economies that empower all have been achieved. So he's kind of... I. I I think that's an important sentence because he's highlighting that we're 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 in new territory now, and it's not just technological; it's also demographic. Yeah, yeah. When we think of a lot of times in America, there's at times when we're we're frustrated with our government. People will look to Scandinavia. It's not that Scandinavia is perfect, but there's things that they seem to do more efficiently, effectively. They're smaller and more homogenous, like those countries. I mean, we're a big country that's very diverse. Yeah, like it's 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 a challenge to govern something. Hmm this big that's this diverse mm. with a sort of liberal democratic ethos absolutely i i remember this is pretty off topic but you know when you talk about the the um the simplicity of of managing more homogeneous populations uh i always think back to um a kind of a senior delegation i was a part of that went to estonia i guess now it's a couple of years ago um and you know one of the one of the features of estonia is how digital that society is is that where they vote with the cards? Yeah, exactly. Laptops? So this is so exactly. So you kind of you plug in, you plug in your national ID card into a a, a card reader on your computer, and you can vote like from your computer. System. I'm into this. It, it's really interesting. You can also like change your vote up until it kind of the the polls close, kind of thing. So that's neat. But you know, part of being able to implement that technology is a pretty broad faith in the technology. And in the system of voting. And I think that part of what helps uh, a society like Estonia to, to have faith in that system, to have faith in the bureaucracy that builds it and maintains it, is um, that it is a small and remarkably homogeneous population population of people. And so there's a kind of there's a background of unearned uh, trust that is nonetheless a reservoir that allows some things to to be uh, to be agreed upon pretty quickly. Yeah, and I, I think like in diverse multicultural societies, that's harder. I think that's a harder. It's absolutely harder. You know, either one of two things has generally happened: either either that w- there was homogen- homogeneity, and now it's disrupted through an increased diversification, or like in the United States, you started off with so, with some relative diversity, and it's it's increased, but it, but it's never it, there's never been a sort of homogenous foundation you know it's always been uh developing and and so i mean there's two different ways i think those tensions form so my friend i have to catch a train soon okay well i don't okay let let me so let's like what what, what's our takeaway from the king's two bodies is these two bodies which are talking through okay so you want us to land the plane okay so here's how let's land the here's how I, i i here's how i begin the descent um 
Put so, your trays so, up, so everybody. From, but so, fasten your seatbelt. So this is great. But if you think of the examples you've given about sort of, you know, other political communities that are much more homogeneous, that kind of helps you to understand in in more diverse societies, you know, like the U.S., where um, you see a rise of populism. You can understand it as um, like a desire for, as he says in this article, quote, a more recognizable body politic. There's a kind of nostalgia for like a, a society, a political community that is more recognizable to me. And I think that's right. People want to have a kind of, we want to be able to recognize the body politic. And it seems that there's two ways to do that. One is to kind of, you know, go back, whether it's real or imagined in some nostalgic way. Or the other way is to figure out a new, you know, forward, a way forward toward more recognizability, which is to say, I see it, and I see my part in it. And it seems to me that that's the, you know, that's kind of the liberal mega project. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you will. Um, to, ex- or, or, to, to, ex- or to accept be, that we be. have this need that, that maybe has yeah, been denied. Or, or, or maybe the liberal project might have to admit it. Because, I mean, I think there's a lot of people that are committed to understanding of the liberal democratic project that actually excises those questions. That it's just a procedural kind of thing, right? Like it's a, but it, but maybe we need more than procedures. Well, yeah. So I think we've got kind of this menu of choices, and if you're a political entrepreneur, you're kind of offering the menu, like the the authoritarian choices. So we're going to offer a fantasy of total integration. Yeah. Okay, that's one way. That's a great phrase. He says total integration. Yeah. We're going to get back church, society, state. We're going to make America great again. We're going to make America great again. The fantasy is total integration, and that's how the body politic becomes recognizable. Um, You know, the other fantasy, and this is kind of the revolutionary, like, okay, so basically we're just going to burn society to the ground and rebuild it from scratch. And that's how we're going to make it recognizable. This thing now unrecognizable, let's just, let's just, wipe the slate clean and we're going to build something new that you'll recognize because we built it together. I mean, this is basically the communist party in China in 1949. This is how we're going to kind of recognizably give you back, um, give you back your country. And then, so the question is, is there a third way, which is um, neither, neither the fantasy of total integration um, nor sort of total, restart but to kind of yeah, to take is, is, to take the cultural mess <laughs> yeah can we look at where we've been and not recreate be informed by it not try to recreate it be informed by it and and learn some lessons that can help us shape something as we move forward and and okay so i think our hypothesis we agree is that procedure shared procedure is not enough it can't just be constitution rule of law it, it can't just be procedural. I think there also has to be um, an element of of myth, of purpose. Yeah, yeah. There of, has to be of, a story of, of yeah. sacred. Yeah, of sacred there has to be story. Something sacred about it. Yeah. yeah, there has to be something sacred about it. And and then that I think is the interesting question of how do we build in in diverse multi ethnic society how to build shared sacred story. Is that that possible? should be our next episode, dude? That our next yeah, episode. that's right up your alley. So you must have the answer to that. I know. Tune in. I want to talk tune in next like, week. Tune in next <laughs> week. I love this. I like it though. See, we've set ourselves up. That's great. All right, my friend. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Um, watch my TED talk again. Yeah, I'll tweet it out so people can see it. I'll do the same. All right, man. All right, later. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to the Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. 
If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.